will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3 is the text that we are in this morning, verses 1 to 6. This is, of course, a, a new chapter that we are uh, beginning, but not really a new section. What, what comes in verses 1 to 6 and, and even, uh, of course, uh, verse 7, as we'll look at uh, next week, is really kind of following the, uh, the same thought that begins in chapter 2, verse 15. But here in uh, chapter 3, uh, Peter is going to be uh, giving instructions, uh, particularly to uh, Christian wives. And uh, so we will begin our time together by uh, reading the Word of God, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 6. And Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything. That is frightening. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, we are reminded day after day of the vision and the design that you have for women and for wives and for marriages is very different from that of the world and the pressures that the world places on women who in essence sell themselves to the highest bidder. Lord, you have given to your people, you have given to Christian wives especially a high calling to reflect gospel of Christ, to reflect the relationship of the church to Jesus within, within their homes and within their own families. And you instruct us in your very word that it is this, this design, this pursuit of godliness which shows true beauty true strength and the character of a woman who has nothing to fear. 
So I pray for our time this morning, Lord, that especially this week and next as we consider the instructions that you give to, to families, to wives and to husbands, Lord, that you would already begin doing the work of maturing and growing and shaping our own families, that we would be a reflection of the gospel ourselves. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Well, the culture that we live in, you all probably very familiar with, has very strong views on how women more generally and wives, of course, in particular, should live. It claims to be a very uh, tolerant and open society and culture, it claims to be open to varying perspectives, but especially when it comes to matters of manhood and womanhood and gender and sexuality and marriage, the world demands of everyone absolute obedience, absolute submission to its views. There's really no room for disagreements and no room for any kind of departures from its now really established feminist morality. Any departure from this now we're seeing even more and more may indeed bring all kinds of legal consequences. Because of this, Christians can often become a, a target of much ridicule and scorn because our views on these particular matters, and really more accurately, uh, the view of God, revealed in His Word, uh, our views are radically opposed from those of the world. For much of the modern world, to be a strong woman is to be an independent woman. It is to be a woman who at all costs pursues advancement in some kind of career. It's a, to head up some kind of organization or some business. It's to Show yourself capable of doing whatever a, a man can do, and perhaps, of course, even doing it better uh, than a man. And to be a strong woman is to be able to manipulate men to get uh, whatever it is that you want. It's, it's to use your body in uh, seductive and provocative ways as an expression of liberation, as an expression of bodily autonomy and, and freedom. That, that's, that's really uh, women's empowerment these days is uh, how provocative can I be? What is worth the attention of magazines and articles and movies and media and every form of popular attention is not really a woman's character. It's her form. It's how she looks. It's her youthfulness. It's her outward beauty. That, that's what's worthy of commendation by our culture. Older women are encouraged to preserve their youth at all costs. And uh, younger women, and even unfortunately young female children even, 
are encouraged to display their bodies for everyone to see and to gaze at even while they are so young. In a marriage, women are encouraged not to be a helpmate to their husbands, but to continue pursuing their independence and their dreams and their aspirations and And of course, these are dreams and aspirations that uh, typically can only be found outside uh, of the home. Those kinds of of dreams. If if your dream is to be uh, just a a good mother who stays at home and raises your children, it's as if you've failed in your, your feminine stature to the world. Many marriages are, are sadly nothing more than two people independently pursuing their own oftentimes opposite goals with nothing more than a contract that keeps them together. And that only if they don't get in each other's way. If they start conflicting with each other, if their, if their goals, if their aspirations begin moving in the opposite direction, well, that little contract is just ripped right up. Easy peasy. No more. There's much more that could be added even to this, but the point is that true femininity, true female strength and power and bravery and courage is is viewed largely as a competition with men or or their husbands. Where women must use everything, including their bodies, to acquire the upper hand, to achieve some kind of dominance. And and much of this is even often driven by nothing more than a response to popular caricatures of the 1950s, where women are supposedly, or or were supposedly viewed as, as nothing more than doorsteps that you place in the home. That, that is a caricature for a reason. But this feminist idea, of course, is an altogether different vision of womanhood. It's a different vision of being a wife than what God has created and what He has revealed in His Word. In the text that we're in this morning, Peter is continuing to address these various Christian relationships that involve authority and submission. He has, of course, spoken of the conduct that is required of Christians as we live under the authority of the state. He has spoken of the conduct that is required of Christians as as they relate to their masters, as, as some of them when they came to faith in Christ, were, were no doubt servants, slaves in, in a household. And now he turns his attentions in particular to, 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 to wives. And, and he gives Christian wives the same exhortation as he gave to Christian slaves and, and as he gave to, to just every Christian who lives as a citizen or who lives under the authority of he says to 
wives that likewise they are to be subject to their own husbands. They are to submit themselves to the leadership and the the guidance of their own husbands. Not to just men in general, husbands. Before we look at this passage in more detail and the various arguments that are presented here, I want to draw your attention first to the very end of this passage in verse 6. Peter here is calling Christian wives to imitate Sarah's obedience to her husband, Abraham. And he says in verse 6, and and you, you Christian wives, you are her children. That, That is, you are in the line of Godly women. You are covenant people of God. You are members of His household. You're in her line. Notice, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Christian women and Christian wives in particular are and are to be fearless women. Strong, bold, courageous, fearless women. A Christian wife is not someone who is afraid. She is bold. She is full of conviction and resolve. There is nothing that can throw her off the path. She is not some weak willed woman who is constantly trampled over and who is taken advantage of at every turn. That is not the, the call to submission here. These things and the things which which should be intimidating to perhaps people and, and situations which, which one would think would be frightening. Whatever it is, Peter says, that has the potential of being frightening, perhaps even being divorced by your unbelieving husband here, the, this horrible situation, whatever it is, that is frightening. You Christian wives, you're fearless. You're not shaken by those things. Her strength and her fearlessness is not found in all of the things that the world points to. You don't cultivate strength by becoming Experts by pursuing everything that the world says is strong. She is not strong if she hopes in the fading beauty of her body. That that is not a demonstration of strength. She's not strong because she she works to show herself to be an, an independent woman. The strength and the fearlessness of a Christian wife or a Christian 
woman is found in her godliness and in her obedience to and her fear of God. She does not fear man. She fears God. And that is what Peter says is, is true strength. And so that's what I want us to consider together. This, this fearlessness and the true strength of a godly wife. And of course, ladies, this is especially directed at you as it is uh, addressed specifically to you. But men, this is also for you. If, if you are not married, the, these are the kinds of qualities you are to be looking for in a wife. If you are married, these are the kinds of qualities that you should be encouraging and helping to cultivate in your own wife. And if you have children, these are the kinds of qualities you want to teach your sisters. Not to follow the ways of the world which will only lead to pain and destruction. But to train them, to train your, your women, your, your daughters to pursue God with all of her strength. Now, the immediate situation that the Apostle Peter is addressing here is a situation in which a Christian woman is married to an unbelieving husband. And we can see this in verse 1 where he describes the husbands here as one who does not obey the Word. This Christian wife is married to one who does not obey the the word. And, and this phrase here, this doesn't simply mean that there's a, a Christian husband who's presently living contrary to his profession of faith. This, this is a phrase that Peter uses to refer to unbelievers in particular. It's the same description we find in chapter 2, verse 8, where Peter there is referring to, to unbelievers who stumble over. Christ and who do not submit to Christ as Lord. And he says there in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, they stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. The one who disobeys the Word is an unbeliever. And so these, these women here, these wives, are married to unbelieving Husbands, the, the wives at, at some point in their lives, perhaps it was through one of the, the slaves in their household. Perhaps it was through, uh, if you were a Jewish woman, attending the synagogue. Or perhaps it was in the marketplace. You, you've come across a Christian or you have a friend of a Christian. These wives at some point have heard the Gospel and they've believed the Gospel, but their husbands have not. And now they find themselves in in this marriage where on really the most central foundation of a marriage, they don't agree. What is she to do? How is she supposed to live in this situation? Should she divorce her husband? Is she, is she given the, the, the license now to, to divorce? her husband? My, my husband's not a Christian. He's not, he's not following the Lord and so I just need to separate and find another 
another man to be my husband. Should she do that? Should women leave their husbands and their unbelieving husbands and, and treat them as fools? How could you be so foolish following this, this pagan idolatry? Should they just be constantly badgering them about it? How are they to live? Peter, of course, says no to all of that. He, he says to them, to Christian wives, he says, Submit yourself to your husband. And this is, of course, this is not a this is not a, a marital suggestion. This is not some option here. This is a command that comes with all of the authority of God Himself, and the very same authority that we find in chapter two, verse thirteen, where it says, "Be subject for the Lord to every human institution." It's the same command, the same force that is given to slaves as they are commanded to submit themselves to their masters. And of course, it's not a, a temporary command only applied to a particular time and a particular situation. It's not just, you know, oh, this is just how first people lived and now things are different and that doesn't really apply to us anymore. And this is the very same command that we find elsewhere in a, in a command that is rooted in a biblical vision that transcends all times and places. The Apostle Paul, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, writes the very same thing to Christian wives. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, he writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The submission of wives to their husbands, their, their obedience and their willingness to follow the leadership of their husbands is not a requirement that results from wives or, or women in general being inferior or less than their husbands. It's not a symbol of weakness or a symbol of oppressive patriarchy. The way that God has designed a marriage in the very beginning, rooted in creation itself, the way that He has designed the family is to be a reflection of the very Gospel of Jesus Christ, with the wife reflecting, imaging the submission of the church to her head, Jesus Christ, and the husband reflecting and imaging the love of Christ towards the bride, the church. So that's not, that's not something that just applies only to the, the ancient world. This is rooted in the very fabric of creation. This is how God has designed things. You can think in a very similar way as we've been going through the book of Numbers, how there, there are all of these kinds of regulations that are set up in the Old Covenant. The, the way the tabernacle and the temple is supposed to be built in a particular way and how the sacrifices are to be 
offered and who can enter and who cannot enter. And as we've seen, all of these things are ultimately pointing towards a fulfillment in the Gospel of Christ. And it's the very same thing with a marriage. God has structured it. He has designed it in the particular way that it is the Gospel. And Peter is saying here that just because the Christian wife has a husband who remains an unbeliever, that doesn't change her responsibility to reflect the Gospel in her submission to her husband. It may certainly make things more challenging, no doubt. And, and it's certainly to create disagreements and perhaps even unfortunate tensions within the marriage. In fact, in the first century, it was expected of wives in the Greco-Roman world that they followed the religion of their husbands. You don't get a say in it. It's not, it's not as if, you know, you're, you're raised Roman Catholic, you're raised Protestant, and we'll just kind of do our own thing. No. In the Greco-Roman world, if, if you are a, a woman and you get married to your husband, you embrace Otherwise, it's a public shame. One ancient writer, in fact, Plutarch, wrote, quote, that a wife should not acquire her own friends, but she should make her husband's friends her own. And then he says, the gods are the first and most significant friends. And for this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. So these views that were present in the day, you can imagine that for many of these Christian wives who still had pagan husbands, things could be quite stressful at home. We can also note here this submission, as is the case elsewhere, as we've seen in chapter 2, verse 13, and in verse... This submission is not absolute. Right? It's not uh, obedience in every and all circumstances. If the husband, for example, wants his wife to disobey God, if he wants her to sacrifice to these idols, if he wants her to continue on in this pagan to do things that are sinful... She is obligated to refuse. She is obligated to, to place obedience to God above submission to her husband. She doesn't follow him to hell. But as much as possible, and as long as she can act with a clean conscience in accordance with the Word of God, a Christian wife is to submit to her husband. Again, his, his leadership, his, his direction. Now, here as with governors and ministers and other unbelieving there is also an evangelistic aim to her, her behavior, her submission. The purpose of the Christian wife submitting to her 
unbelieving husband is stated in verses 1 and 2. If you look at it again, may be one. Those who disobey the word, they're unbelieving husbands. So that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that she, she never opens her mouth and she never speaks to her husband about the gospel. We've already seen before that words are vital. They are necessary. You have to verbalize the gospel message for anyone to come to know the Lord in a saving way. What Peter is getting at here is that the wife is not to to constantly badger or nag her husband with words. It's not to be a, a repeated day after day, know the Lord, you need to know the Lord kind of thing. She must tell him about Jesus. She must tell him about her own hope of the Gospel. She must tell him why it is that she can no longer join him in his paganism. She must communicate that to him. And he needs to know about her own hope in God. But then Peter is saying she must allow her life in the home and her resolve to obey God above all to do most of the talking. She needs to give him something to see. That that the gospel has changed her life. That her priorities have been completely reoriented around Christ. Their husbands should see something in them. And and Peter says, number one, that what they should see, one of the things they should see is pure conduct. The wife is not to be someone that the husband has to worry about. She, She mustn't provoke him to jealousy. She doesn't flirt with other men or act in ways that that draws attention from others to herself. Rather, she's she's to devote herself completely to Him. She is to be loyal to her husband, but loyal most of all because she is loyal to God. And loyal to the covenant that she entered into with her husband before God. Her own loyalty is to God and from that flows her devotion to her husband. And this is also the second matter that the husband should clearly see. Her her fear of God. The original language literally says here that that when when they see your pure conduct in fear, in the The fear here has a a reference to the fear of God. In other words, the Christian woman, this wife here, is to be clearly seen as a God-fearing woman. God-fearing wife and fiercely obedient to Him. And the husband should see this. And Peter says, what will win him to the Lord? He's able to see what has happened 
for you. He's, he's heard that you have a hope in God, a hope in Christ. But this could be, he could just consider this just some random thing that has happened, just some phase. He could dismiss it. But if he sees a, a change in you, if he sees your, your holiness, your, your godliness, that will win him. Lord. Now, this leads Peter to give instructions about clothing. Look at me again at verses 3 and 4. Right after this command, be submissive to your own husbands. There's this evangelistic aim that is behind it. Then in verse 3 and 4, he says, Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. What is the connection here? What leads Peter from saying that you are submit your own husband, you want to win him to the Lord, you want him to see your, your pure, God-fearing conduct. Now don't dress in this particular way. What's the connection? I think what we see here in, in Peter's concern is in fact what we see presented as female empowerment today. This is his, his concern. Women are encouraged and, and even pressured often to use their bodies and to use their dress to get what they want. And even Christian women can be tempted to do the very same thing. And it's not hard to imagine the temptation that would have existed for these particular women, these Christian wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. What's their concern? I want my husband to know the Lord. I want him to know Jesus. I want him to be a Christian. I want to be able to worship together with him. This, this is important to me. But he's not listening to me. He's not taking this seriously. He's not giving me the time of day on this matter. He's showing no interest at all in what I care about and what is good and in fact right for Him. Maybe if I really work on my body, maybe if I wear these particular clothes that He, he really likes, maybe if I do my makeup in a particular way, and I, I do this with my eyes, maybe, maybe then I'll catch the attention of his eyes and then he'll listen to me. And then I can win him to the gospel. That's what a lot of women are often tempted to do, to, to spend all of their time and energy on perfecting their bodies and perfecting their looks and perfecting their particular dress. And what Peter, what Peter calls here, the, the, all of this, he, he refers to it as their, their external 
adornment. Many women often pursue these things to to win the attention of men and to win the attention of their husbands and to persuade them in a particular way. But Peter, addressing these Christian women and wives here in particular, says that this is not what you are to do. This is not what your energies are to be placed on. He is not here placing a a total ban on the wearing of jewelry or the or particular hairstyles. In fact, the, the last phrase, clothing that you wear, literally says wearing clothes. So, so in other words, if we, if we were to read this again, don't let your adorning be external like wearing clothes. Peter's not, not banning here wearing clothes. This is not a, a total ban on all of these things that he's mentioning. He is telling these Christian women, don't give yourselves over to that external superficiality. Don't give yourselves over to the kind of external beauty that does not last. It fades with time. And you can do nothing about it. What are you to do? Verse 4 you are rather to cultivate the hidden person of the heart. You are to cultivate an imperishable beauty. A gentle and a quiet spirit. Not all of the external things. That's not what your your husband needs to see. He needs to see your, your heart. That transformation within. He needs to see that Gentle and quiet spirit that is a result, that is a fruit of the gospel and your fear of God. Now, there's a very similar phrase here that's, in fact, actually applied to all Christians in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So, this, this characteristic here, this gentle and quiet spirit, this is not something that is, that is only for uh, Christian. Wives. So, for example, Paul commands Christians in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says that we are to pray for all people and for kings and for those in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Very similar phrase. Which is to say that our desire as a Christian people who live in the world is not that we would be a troublesome people. We don't want to just cause a bunch of problems for the sake of causing problems. We want to be a people who are very much like a a still, calm lake in the midst of a raging storm. We want to be the calming force in the world. Certainly we recognize that it is often the case that our message may bring accusations against us as it did with the early church that we are turning the world upside down. But as a people, we want to strive for peacefulness and strive for quiet. We're not aiming to bring all of the attention to ourselves. What our ultimate aim is to bring all the attention to Christ. We want Him to receive all glory and honor. 
And here in 1 Peter, Peter says that wives are to be a kind of exemplar of this peaceful, quiet, godly spirit. It's as if if, if someone were to come to us and, and they were to ask, some unbeliever comes to us, so what, what business does the church have in the world? I, mean, I, I know you all believe that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and you have, a, you have a hope for the future. You have a hope of being with Christ your King for all eternity in a new world. But that's in the future. What is your business now? What do you want to achieve? What, what are you trying to, to be and do in the world now? I should be able to speak to that person. And I should be able to, to direct their and say, you, you see that you see that Christian family over there? I want you to spend three months with them. They would be happy to have you in their house or, you know, once a week or twice a week. Or they'd be happy to have you over. I, I want you to watch them. I want you to hang around them and I want you to observe their family. I want you to pay special attention to the wife. I want you to see how she cares for her family. I want you to see how she prays for her children. I want you to see how she gives her whole life to them. I want you to see how she rears her children, how she reads the Bible to them, how she speaks of Christ to them, how she sings with them, how she laughs with them, how she plays with them. And then I want you to look and notice and see how she, how she treats her husband. How she loves her husband. How she counsels him. How she supports him. How she encourages him. And, and shows him honor and respect. I want you to see how she makes him a more godly man. How all of his sinful flaws she builds up. She, she makes better. I want you to notice how she, she is indeed a, a perfect helpmate that corresponds to Him as the Lord has made her to be. I want you to notice how she makes Him better. And as we say that to an unbeliever, as we draw their attention to wives in the home in particular, we should, be the, we should then be able to say, this is the kind of influence the church wants to have in the world. To make the world a better place. To draw the attention of the world to the gospel of Christ. The church wants to be a people who prays for the, Lord, for, for the world and, and seeks its good. And you can see the church's mission by looking at the wife in the home of a That's what we should be able to say. Because the godly wife has a very high calling of displaying the church to the world in and through her home 
in and through her life. Peter is exhorting Christian wives especially not to waste their lives chasing after the fading beauty. Rather, they are to use all of their efforts, use all of their strength to chase after that beauty, he says, that is imperishable. And that in the sight of God is precious. They are to demonstrate their strength and their fortitude by being women who above all hope in God. And display that by their obedience to Him. Which leads us lastly to verses 5 and 6. Peter gives a rather interesting example of this in the life of Sarah, Abraham's wife. He says there, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Peter here is alluding to the passage that we read from earlier from Genesis 18. It's it's the only in in the Old Testament in, in the book of Genesis where we find Sarah calling Abraham her Lord. And it's an interesting passage because it's not really a passage that shows the strength of Sarah's faith. It's a a passage, in fact, that in many ways is is a little uh, embarrassing in that regard. Genesis 18, the Lord, of course, comes to Abraham along with, with two angels right before Sodom and Gomorrah is to be destroyed. And he tells Abraham, who is an old man at this point, along with Sarah, his wife, she's an old woman. He tells Abraham, these three men tell Abraham that the child of promise, that that Isaac will be born to him through Sarah in about a year. And Sarah is, is listening to this conversation take place on the outside of the tent where they're meeting. And when when she hears when she hears that she's going to have a child as an old woman in about a year, she laughs at it. She, she can't believe it. She's an old woman who can't have children anymore. It's a, it, it's a physical impossibility. And yet because of the promise of God and because of the power of God, of course that's what eventually does happen. But while Sarah is listening being said, again, we're told that she laughs and that she laughs to herself. She's she's chuckling by herself at, at what she hears. And as she's sort of chuckling, she speaks to herself in verse 13 and she says, after I'm I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She's speaking to herself here. Now, now this is the text that Peter here keys in on. This is his example of Sarah displaying her godly behavior in submitting herself to the headship of Abraham and calling him Lord. 
And the reason he does so is because this text in particular displays Sarah's heart towards her husband, Abraham. Again, she doesn't believe that anyone is around to hear. She's not speaking to anyone. She speaks to herself, and and as she speaks, she calls Abraham her Lord, not to impress him, not to meet some kind of cultural expectation. There was no one around to hear. She called him her Lord because that was a term that represented honor and respect and authority. And her general disposition towards Abraham was one in which she, she submitted herself to his headship. It, it was like just second nature to her. It had become so a part of who she was that it even just rolled right off of her tongue without even much of a thought and without any concern of somebody around hearing her say what she said. It, it was just the overflow of her heart coming out in her words. That is the example that Christian wives are to follow. To have a heart that is so devoted to your husband that to honor him and to love him and to to show him that respect and follow in his leadership. It's just second nature. It's a part of who you are as a follower of the Lord. Now, of course, the world finds this idea appalling. This is is not something that's going to be plastered on billboards. This is considered by many to be a sign of weakness and a sign of just being oppressed, beaten, Peter, rightly so, would argue otherwise. In fact, the contrary is the case. Notice again what he says. He says, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. There are women who are controlled by their own insecurities and fears. They project strength and power by using their bodies or seduction or manipulation in an attempt through that to find security. They hope that a man will respect them if they use their bodies in such a way that pleases him. Friends, that that is not power. That is not strength. That is actually fear. That is living in bondage, not in freedom. Many women are driven by a a fear of a husband leaving them. and, And this drives them to prioritize their own independence above their God given responsibilities in the family. They're driven by a fear of. But what would happen if my husband left me or if my husband died? Right? I've got to have some way to, to provide for the family. And so the pursuit of a career is driven by that. 
Many fear rejection, and so they use seduction for acceptance and security. Many others fear what they may lose as their youthfulness fade, and so they spend thousands and thousands of dollars and hours upon hours maintaining that which is ultimately going to perish. There are countless fears and countless insecurities that undergird so much of what passes as strong feminism. And it's just a lie. These Christian wives that Peter is addressing in this letter, they could have justified their own fears in much the same way. They were no longer worshiping the gods of their husbands. They were no longer joining Him in offering sacrifices to the emperor. And people would have noticed that that was the case and it no doubt would have brought ridicule not only to them, not only to the wise, but to their husbands. And so there was a very real possibility that they could actually be divorced by their husbands and all the security that they had known before would be gone in an instant. That's a real fear. That's a real potential and danger. What does Peter say to them by way of encouragement and exhortation? You are Sarah's children. And you are her children if you do good. And you don't fear what is frightening. All of those frightening possibilities out there. You don't fear it. Because you fear God. And your hope is in Him. Not in the world and the things of the world. Their conduct was not to be determined by their insecurities or by the culture or even by their own husbands. It was to be determined and shaped by their hope in God. And in this, they would join with the holy women of old. And indeed, when a wife prioritizes the fear of God and hope in God above everything else, including her husband and including her children, it is then and only then that she will be free to love them as they truly ought to be loved. Not turning them into idols, but entrusting them to the care of God. Christian wife is to be a woman who displays her power and strength, not through external adornment, but ultimately through her faith and devotion to the Lord. That is a strength that resides within and is deeply rooted in the very work and grace of the Spirit of the kind of the world does not understand, but a kind of strength that must be seen and must be displayed through the lives of godly women. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him in this way. Make our women, make you ladies and, and Christian wives to be the very exemplar of the church itself to the world.
Well, Father, again, you have created the family to display the work of the gospel to the world. This is not only the case for husbands who are called to to reflect Jesus and his love for the church, but it is reflected also in the calling that you have given the Christian wives to be a reflection of the church and the love and devotion of the church as to its head, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us here and all of our families and families that are to be. I pray, Lord, that, that you would make us a, a shining light and an example of a stable home that is rooted and founded upon Christ and His Word. And that as we see so many families disintegrating before us, and as we see so much confusion that exists around men and women in this culture, Lord, that we would be a clear and shining example of how You intend the world to be and how You designed the family to be. And that through this, Lord, the gospel would be. I pray this all in Jesus' name.